Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Hope everybody is having a wonderful first days of their Ramadan. It's a great time to analyze whatever concept of yourself you think you have and uh, put the needs of the spirit on the forefront and the needs of the body behind you. Uh, that's part of the reason why we're fasting from the typical appetites of every day. Um, based on the first episode of Narcissism that I did with Dr. Osman, I had a couple of questions submitted to me. Essentially, the questions um, ask, clearly narcissism is wrong, um, but are narcissists actually blameworthy for what they have? Uh, if you were, let's say, brought up in environments where you were neglected or abused, and not you, the individual didn't get to develop uh, healthy ways of having empathy, vulnerability, uh, and let's say defective parenting or abuse and so forth. Uh, so are people really blameworthy for being narcissistic? And is Pharaoh uh, blameworthy for being narcissistic? Um, or do we can we now blame their childhood or lack of empathy or, you know, negative parental roles and so forth? And remember, this also applies to Iblis because the same question would say, well, can we blame Iblis for being Iblis uh, based on the same line of thinking? So my response uh, is as follows, and I'd like everyone to keep this in mind uh, while you listen to the second part of the show. So point number one regarding is narcissism actually blameworthy? Can a person actually be blamed? So number one, all personal conditions are due to nature and nurture interplay. So in psychology, we know that there's always a interplay uh, of your genetic disposition, your temperament and the environment and what you're exposed to, this is constantly interplaying when it comes to everything, right? Your qualities, your intelligence, your your sexual fluidity, um, your personality traits, uh, it's never pegged or blamed on one side only. Well, it's all the environment's fault or it's all the genetics fault. So for example, if a person is more prone to anger due to high levels of testosterone, then let's say the typical male, uh, are they necessarily off the hook for choosing violence more often than not? And let's say the same person is in an environment full of violence, then it would be more understandable that they are violent. However, you'll find that in the same environment, there is also people with the same genetic disposition for aggression. Uh, yet, they're not choosing violence as their main you know, go-to to react to things. They're choosing other healthier ways to cope. So thus, why would, you know, two people with a genetic disposition for aggression uh, still have different choices if they came from the same environment? And we find this, for instance, with, you know, a lot of studies with identical twins. They don't end up being the same in a lot of ways. Sometimes they choose very different life paths. So Pharaoh in the Quran kept choosing to be narcissistic in face of many miracles. For instance, the magicians accepting Musa a.s. Uh, the logical arguments that were presented to him by Musa and even by um, his advisors in his own court, uh, his own wife Asiya, peace be upon her, leaving him. And he did have many chances and wake-up calls, but still, you know, he chose to say no. And Allah knows, ladies and gentlemen, what's in all of our hearts. But that means, in a sense, that Pharaoh actually knew Musa perhaps was speaking the truth and was a true messenger, and perhaps his kufr was one of rebellion, like Iblis. Iblis knows Allah exists, but his kufr was a matter of rebellion. I, I'm basically waving my fist up at you. 
Pharaoh, he acknowledges Allah existed and he witnessed many miracles. And every time something happened, he asked Musa to remove it and he'll be better and he'll agree. And then once it went back to normal and he got comfortable again, he continued with his narcissism, subhanAllah. So Pharaoh himself acknowledged Allah existed, but perhaps he made himself equal to Allah. And that was the, the damage of the narcissism ultimately. So a person is still choosing how to respond to their fortune and misfortunes. And there are always more possibilities than just the worst case scenario. This is a fact. And this is why people in as communities, as individuals, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always sending us wake-up calls through tests, tribulations. It's Allah's way of perhaps giving us um, an alarm bell out of His mercy to what you know finally realize our errors. But we can still choose to wake up, be humble, and say, you know what, I gotta really think about this or change my ways, or I can double down. The second point that everyone has to consider is a person in severe conditions of mental health or environmental health, this tends to lead to what we call, a, let's say, a custom evaluation in one's life and with the divine judgment. So we don't have the same expectations for somebody who was brutally abused all their life compared to, let's say, someone who had it good in their life, right? The evil that comes from these individuals will be accounted for differently due to their context by Allah Azza wa Jal. And this is even the case in civil laws, right? So whether the laws are civil or sacred, the laws apply generally to all. However, there are exceptions that make those general rules and laws. And those exceptions must and will always exist. This is why we have fiqh. This is why we have you know, certain circumstances in a court of law where a person can plea insanity, let's say, because they are actually were insane. Um, or became insane because of a number of factors. And so now the judgment will be different than someone who was not insane or had no history of mental illness or abuse, let's say. Another point that's important to keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, is humans are always accountable within their freedom and their limits or their submission. In other words, there are always choices you can and cannot make given the environmental conditions and natural laws of order. Personal will is still limited by these factors, but also has a force within these limits. So for instance, nobody can fly like Superman or Superwoman uh, to go visit their family in another state or country, but you can take the means of reserving an airline ticket and taking a flight to get somewhere, right? That's something you actually can do and will within the limits of the natural laws and order. Uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu to answer this question about what is you know will versus the will of God he said you know you can stand on one leg lift one leg and stand on one however if you were asked to lift the second leg at the same time but not put the other leg down can you still stand and the answer is no so there are certain things you just can't do even if you want to will it you're still surrendered or submitted, or have to accept the natural laws of order. A couple of other ones. You cannot live without oxygen, or food, or sleep, no matter how much technology you have. So there are always things that we're going to be limited to, by definition, and always things that we can choose to do within those limits. Or Allah has set the order and nature of things. And now we get to choose the infinite possibilities within that. 
The last point is, as the Prophet ﷺ told us, all diseases have a cure. This is part of the code that Allah designed reality with. Whatever it is, there are, there are counter and opposite forces in the same universe. There's matter and antimatter. There's good and evil, hot and cold. There are cures for diseases, whether they're, they've been around for a while or they're new. So sometimes we have not discovered the cure or learned how to maximize the cure, or we might be misdirected or misguided around what is the disease or what would be the cure. But the cure always exists, according to Islam. And I hope, inshallah, we keep these points in mind uh, as we listen to part two today. And the reason I'm sharing this response to some of the questions or inquiries of episode one is for us to always remember there is always hope and there is always um, a cure for whatever evil exists. And last story I'll share. It's not um, a hadith per se, but I remember learning it from the traditions of uh, in Islamic literature. I think it was even maybe connected to the Isra'iliyat. When Musa was going to receive the commandments from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Iblis shows up on his path in the form of a man. And he says, O oh Musa, you are a great messenger whom Allah speaks to directly. Can you ask God to forgive me uh, for my ways? Iblis is saying this. So Musa goes to Allah and he, on his way back, he, he sees Iblis waiting for him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, gives uh, Musa the answer to, to give Iblis. He says, uh, Allah said he will forgive you. He wants you to go to the grave of Adam to prostrate now to Adam. And in other words, obey the command that Allah commanded you on the first day when he created Adam. So Iblis got fired up and said, you think I'm going to prostrate to Adam while he's dead when I didn't even do it when he was alive? Exactly, right? That's Iblis choosing, once again, to be arrogant and narcissistic, even though Allah is giving him another chance. So I hope that makes it clear for everybody, and inshallah you benefit from today's discussion. To another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Joining me once again is Dr. Osman Attar. He is going to continue the fascinating discussion of narcissism. There was a part one, so if you haven't heard that, please go check it out. But we're going to give a little summary today of some of the major themes and continue with our exploration of this state. Dr. Osman, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Kareem. All right, sir. How about let's start with summarizing the definition of narcissism and the major themes and points that we want the audience to capture from our first discussion, inshallah. What do you say? Yeah, sure, inshallah. The conversation that we focused on last time is that narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder is not something that is unfamiliar to the Quran. It's something that we should be more familiar with as Muslims. So there's nine criteria based on what's called the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, which is used in psychiatry to diagnose people with conditions. And those criteria are basically, <laughs> number one, grandiosity, or feeling self-important. Number two, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance. 
Number three, a belief that the narcissist is special and can only be understood by other special people or high-status people. Number four, desiring excessive admiration. Number five, a sense of entitlement. Number six, interpersonally exploitive behavior, how much you use other people in your life. Number seven, a lack of empathy. Number eight, envy or a belief that other people are envious of him or her. And number nine, a demonstration of arrogant or haughty behaviors and attitudes. And like I said last time, a lot of these bleed into the other. But what we're looking for is for someone to have a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder is at least five of the nine criteria that I just stated. And if we only have two or three of them, what does that mean? It just means that you're on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. It means that you may not have a full diagnosis but you have some things that you should be a little worried about. Uh, and a lot of us may have things that, you know, we think we may see in ourselves, but the first point or the first step is self-awareness to root out any kind of problematic narcissistic behaviors that we have. Right. So with that said, it is possible for a narcissist to be self-aware of their narcissism, correct? For someone to actually have a the diagnosis, it's less likely it's less uh, it's, likely. Yeah, it's less likely. But if someone has, you know, if someone has done like a lot of self, you know, analysis and has a good awareness of their behaviors, then it is possible that someone has narcissistic traits and they realize like, oh, yeah, I, I really think about how much I need other people to admire me. Right. And th what's interesting, too, is these nine conditions, each of those can also exist in a variety of intensity, right? So I could have, exactly. let's say, three of them, they're like 10 out of 10, and I could have, let's say, the other five are, are five out of 10, or and a couple are eight out of 10, for right. instance. That's possible, correct? So it's important for people just to know it's not all black and white, and there is a variation of intensity for these qualities. Uh, some of the ways they can practically manifest is these people are extremely sensitive, to their own image and anything that distorts or affects their perfect or grandiose image. And they will harness, you know, social experiences or people to maintain that image. This person, uh, you know, we're talking about, again, a, a, an archetypal clinical narcissist. Uh, this type of person also could have extreme envy. Like every time they interact with somebody, they're constantly evaluating how they are better than them or how the other person it might be skinnier or more handsome or stronger, and that just bothers them the whole time. Like they can't be present with the person because they're just always evaluating how everything measures up to them or makes them feel less adequate on some level and then what they can do to not feel less adequate. Kareem, I think you stated it very well. And, and one thing that I would also add is that part of the reason why it's hard for a narcissist who really has a disorder, you know, like someone who is diagnosable, to realize that they're actually narcissistic and they have a problem is that they're they cling so hard to this delusion, this self-image that they create. So it's almost like the the negative or the negative kind of coping mechanisms that they develop, which create the disorder, is also what prevents healing. If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And other people who, you know, have ex described experiences may also suggest that, 
you know, when you're around narcissists, it's like they excessively argue, even when you're trying to be nice or even sometimes when you praise them. Because even when you praise them not the way they want you to or the way they like, you can still get in trouble. So, I mean, it's like, again, we're talking about a very severe state that it's not just, you know, a typical person who's, let's say, a little more sensitive or prideful at times, right? We're talking about something that is reoccurring and it's almost like beating you with a hammer, these types of symptoms and conditions and how they manifest, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Let's summarize, inshallah, the main themes and messages from the first discussion, Osman. And I wanted to just quickly share a couple of things. One is we, we talked about how narcissism is very Dajjalic because it's all about promoting and protecting falsehood by any means necessary. And this is very Iblisi, right? This is very shaitanic. Uh, we also talked about the importance of recognizing that narcissism that's found in the examples of the Qur'an, which we're going to continue to explore today, are also not just, uh, you know, these aren't just nice mythic stories, right? These are practical, very realistic um, warnings, advice, and guidance and these stories are there for a reason, because it's supposed to keep giving humankind till the end of time very powerful, valuable messages and tools. So I just want everyone to really think about this, because it's not just like, you know, Osman and I are here trying to, you know, impose our psychological nerdiness onto the Quran. It's like, I, I genuinely believe Allah is warning us about the states of humankind in, in a variety of forms. And this is certainly one of them. What are your thoughts about that? We, just like you said, Brother Kareem, we need to start viewing the lessons in the Quran as not storytells, but things that we can apply to our own lives and characters and frames which we look at and we examine ourselves through and the people we live with. So in that vein, I looked at the story of Pharaoh and the story of Satan or Shaitan in the Quran. So that's a lot of what we talked about the first time. And I can go into that with each, starting with Pharaoh. So we we basically established in the first session that Pharaoh suffered from narcissistic personality disorder based on the modern criteria that we have in the realm of psychiatry. And once we established that, we looked at a lot of the things that he did with Musa salam and Bani Israel and his own people, which were acting through the lens of a narcissist. The first thing that we talked about was that Pharaoh ruled in a diabolical manner, autocratically, he was not tolerant of being questioned in any manner. And the way that we showed this was that he basically vowed to kill Musa salam simply for stating that the true God was Allah and God, the God is not Pharaoh or Pharaoh, which was the religion of Egypt at that time. The second thing that we looked at is that the way that Pharaoh responded to Musa al-Islam's arguments was typical of how a narcissist will use emotional manipulation and personal character attacks to get what they want. So the other thing that's very interesting about narcissists as an aside is that it can be very difficult to have an open conversation with a narcissist because having open conversations requires acknowledging the truth. And like we had said earlier, the narcissist is not interested in the truth. They're really just interested in their own self-image, which will 
regardless of whatever image that they have, will require a certain level of lying and deception. The person doesn't necessarily even care about you. So why would they right. care about your message? They almost it's almost like they have this like, you know, Terminator, you know, robot radar lens. It's like they evaluate a room or a scene and if immediately there's no utility for their ego, it's almost like you sometimes you get completely tuned out or you're invisible to the person, right? So of course it's very hard to have a Socratic philosophical dialogue with somebody whose mindset is as such. But please continue. Their aims in terms of speaking to someone or having a conversation is very different than someone who may be more normal, quote unquote. You know, their use of conversation is exchanging ideas or or have you. And the narcissist will basically use conversations to to dominate people, right? Or they'll ignore you. So what Firon does with with Musa al-Islam is he uses emotional appeals when uh, confronted with this argument about Allah and releasing Bani Israel, he basically says, I'm the one who raised you, you know, I have some favor, and then you're also a criminal. You killed someone. So since you killed someone, I shouldn't listen to you, which is called an ad hominem attack, what we mentioned last time. The last thing that he does is that he displays severe grandiosity to the extent where, like we we know through the story of the Quran, is that he's willing to deny the power of God. And he also has a delusion that all the good things in Egypt, like the, the water, the river, agriculture, comes from him. So that's how I would summarize Pharaoh. And then we can also go into Shaitan. What are your thoughts on that, Brother Green? That's a great summary. You know me, I love a good summary. <laughs> and uh, I just I just wanted to take maybe just to visualize here some of these themes of Pharaoh, let's say in a marriage, right? How would this look? You know, you have a wife who is looking for more emotional support or she is making some requests to her husband. And let's say in this situation, you know, the husband is the main income. And the husband may, may be in this situation, the one that has more of the narcissistic tendencies. He might say things like, you know, why are you so ungrateful, right? How, why are you asking me for more money? Or why do you tell me that, you know, uh, you need to also, you want to work too, or you want to study, or you, you don't like that I'm not involved enough with the kids or the house. I do everything financially and I don't, you don't, shouldn't ask me for more, right? In other words, you know, I'm entitled to basically come home and do what I want and sit, sit put my feet up, watch TV. And if you even bother trying to tell me to do more on top of that, I will basically crush you and attack you and make you feel totally guilty for even requesting something very basic as, hey, can you help me give mm -hmm. the kids a bath or something, right? So this would be an example of how it could manifest in our day-to-day -day lives, let's say in a couple, where the person's using emotional manipulation, using their, um, you know, their, their reserves or the provisions that they have uh, against you, right? Even though it's an, you know, wajib for the, for each other to take care of each other in such ways, right? So these are some ways that sometimes we at home might be experiencing some of these things. Again, a spouse or a person who never even listens right. to an alternative opinion or option besides the one they've established about a particular matter. And it just makes the person feel like they're dealing with someone 
that is not um, considering logic or truth or even evidence most of the time in their day-to-day life. They're just living in a lot of denial, the narcissist, and constantly overwhelming everybody around them with the narrative of their own image and what is actually happening in their mind versus what's objectively real, right? And this is something, sadly, you know, people go through on a day-to-day basis. And we're going to talk more about tools today, but uh, do you feel like that is one way that it can manifest in our everyday lives, Osman? Because we also want to take that, you know, Quranic um, universal lesson and help people also access it perhaps in their day-to-day lives, if you'd like to add anything. Right, absolutely. Don't think of Pharaoh as just a political authority. It's any kind of authority. It's anyone who is dominating, who is abusive, who is excessive in what they desire from other people. And and I think you stated that example of marriage very well. We need to start, like we said, using these examples and applying them to very personal parts of our lives. Let's talk more about the Iblisi archetype as well, and maybe perhaps how that can manifest in our day-to-day lives today. Right. So with Shaitan or Iblis, the first thing that he does is that he demonstrates to us in the Quran that a lot of this disorder, this illness comes about from pride. When he states in Surah Araf that I am better than Adam because I'm made from fire and he is made from clay. So we understand that pride leads to insatiable envy or a desire to hurt competitors and status which we find when shaitan basically creates this plan to basically try to get Adam and Hawa out of the Jannah, salam. So he, he uses their weak points and he tries to convince them that there's something else out there for them if they disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when he does that, then he basically causes... Uh, our parents to get out of the paradise and then he vows to be enemies to our parents and to us until the end of time as a challenge to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are not the best of creation. So through this example, we understand that we have to be careful of pride in our own lives and that if we have excessive pride, it can definitely make us narcissistic to the point where we develop this disorder. We also understand that one of the main ways, like I stated earlier, with the criteria that this manifests in relationships is envy. And so we we see both of those archetypes with our enemy, the, the devil or, or shaitan. In modern context, this could be, for instance, in a uh, marital context. Uh, somebody who thinks like, oh, well, my gender is superior to yours, right? Or my or my ethnicity is superior to yours. Or we're the same yes. ethnicity, but hey, I come from a better family than yours, right? So there's just so many ways that this idea of I am automatically superior can manifest today. And certainly it does, right? It and does. Then on t- and then on top of it, it's not enough to just already believe these things. But then to say that's my incentive, to continue to pound or hammer the other person into my, you know, egotistic, narcissistical will or pattern, let's say. Dr. Osman, what do we do about the narcissists around us that may exist? And if we are victims, 
And let's talk more about that. And then maybe we can get to what if I'm worried that I have some narcissism and we all should be a little worried. I, I was definitely worried just by <laughs> it's doing our first show and editing. it. I was like, oh, God, protect me from this because I can feel like I mean, some of these things may have been around right in anyone's personality and certainly my own, especially when you're younger. I'm like, wow, looking back, that could have been really nar- that was really narcissistic in some ways, right? Like the way you're perceiving things or interpreting things. And it's like a law protect us. So we sh- nobody here should be comfortable or confident, in my opinion, that, oh, none of this applies to me. No, it, it applies. It's I'm sure something applies, right? So even if it's a little bit. So let's all be humble while we listen to these examples. And I hope, you know, everyone understands that we're not talking down or at anybody. Osman and I, beside, you know, on the sidelines, we're always trying to, you know, uh, give each other feedback and, and make sure that we, you know, drop back down into this, you know, clay body of dust that we actually are. So may Allah increase us with that. I mean, um, and let's talk more about what do we do about the narcissists around us, Dr. Osman, if we are victims? Let's explore that a bit more, please. Right, absolutely. And and just like you said, to preclude, this is not a judgment on anyone. This is, first of all, this exercise, just like you said, this period of exploration that I've had in terms of the, the narcissistic personality and the Quran, it's really, for me, first and foremost, right? Like we have to help ourselves before helping anyone else. And then Hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, the conversation that you and I have can be helpful to other people as well. And and that is my, my greatest desire with this, inshallah ta'ala, if, if our niyyah, if our intention is pure. So having said that, what do we do if we feel like we're a victim of a narcissist? And the way that I would respond to this is once again looking at the Quran, at, uh, at the, the stories that we have with us. The greatest victims of Pharaoh were Bani Israel, the children of Israel. So we know as a little bit of a background, and I find the, the history of the Jewish people very fascinating in terms of lessons for us as Muslims, is that the the Jewish people or the Hebrews came to Egypt under Yusuf, under Joseph. He was made a king in Egypt, and, and they were seen as, as people who were foreigners from the very get-go. Because at that time, uh, if you know, at that time, Egypt was actually not ruled by the pharaohs. They were ruled by another class of people who were also Semitic, like the Hebrews, so they had more acceptance. But then those people, called the Hyksos, were overtaken, and then the pharaohs were put back in power. So with that change in the political authority, it it also affected the way that the Hebrews were represented in society. They were made into slaves. So for about 200, 300, 400 years, they suffered in this way, and then finally things got to a head with Musa alayhi salam. 
And Allah helped Bani Israel. He he gave them miracles. He gave Musa Salam miracles. He gave them the miracle of the parting of the sea, which is what we share with the Christian and Jewish tradition. And they were settled in Palestine, in, in Canaan. So once that happened, the interesting thing that Allah presents us with in the Quran is that after going through the worst sort of oppression in Egypt, even after that, even after seeing the miracles, even after the deliverance from severe, severe types of basically zulm or oppression, Abani Israel still chose to repeatedly disobey the divine command as seen in Surah Baqarah, which I find fascinating, which is something that in today's political climate, I hope that we consider and think about considering that sometimes, uh, you know, in, in certain facets of political life in the U.S. and social life and over the world in general, because we are a trendsetter, we tend to dismiss any kind of responsibility or a sense of personal responsibility emanating from the victim. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that any class of people who has been victimized, and, and r rightly so, they understand that there is a process of victimization, and I'm not denying that, whether it be race, gender, social status, anything. We, we have a tendency in the current political climate, for whatever reason, to say that the victim has a higher moral ground, cannot be questioned, and the story that they're presenting is 100% absolute truth. And if you do not accept that as 100% absolute truth, then there's something wrong with you and you are part of the problem in terms of oppression, right? Yeah. So so that doesn't make sense though, Osman, because in a sense, it's like, okay, if I'm a victim where I experienced oppression or something really bad, how does that automatically make me always good no matter what? Like by, you know what I mean? Exactly, like, how is that, yeah. how does that just, just pop over there all of a sudden? Like, because I've been a, a product of evil that somehow I can never do no evil ever again. Is that always the case? It's not always the case. And that's something that I, I feel as Muslims, we should also be very interested in right now because, because of the phenomenon of Islamophobia, right? So we know that the world over in the U.S., there are documented studies showing how we are barred from uh, financial, personal success, right? You know, there's studies that are out there that show that if your name is foreign, if you have a Arab or Middle Eastern sounding name, you're less likely to be hired, for example. Um, there are people in political offices right now in the U.S. who say all kinds of very strange and terrible things about Islam. When President Trump was elected, he was quoted to have said that Islam hates us. Which, first of all, doesn't make any sense. But you know, just as an idea, these are these are the things that we are facing right now as a community. But I want all of us to always have this in the back of our minds that we don't need to repeat the mistakes of Bani Israel. We we have to use these lessons in the Quran not as like an interesting tidbit of Jewish history, but more of a way to be careful and not repeat those mistakes. So one thing that I'm going to go into now is. I think the most egregious mistake that Bani Israel made, according to the Quran, was that when Musa salam was meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the mount, they made an idol, right? They basically made what was familiar to them in Egypt. And even the, the person who had made it 
they used some of the the gold that they got from Egypt to make the the calf, the golden calf. And so in Surat Al-Araf, this is captured well in which uh, the ayah is, uh, the translation of which is, and the people of Moses made after his departure from their ornaments a calf, an image having a lowing sound. Did they not see that it could neither speak to them nor guide them to a way? They took it for worship and they were wrongdoers. With this example, what I really want to hit home is that sometimes as victims or people who have been oppressed, sometimes that oppression is so familiar to us that we actually start imitating our abusers. And this is what the the Hebrews did when they left Egypt. Uh, and another example which I find really striking in the Quran in Surah Baqarah, which I'll just paraphrase, is that even after being given the, the manna and the quail, the manna salwa, from the heavens, right? From uh, as a miracle from God for, in terms of sustenance, they still wanted like the vegetables, the garlic, the onions, the lentils. Um, I, if you're familiar with this ayah, and and Musa al-Islam basically says, just why don't you just go go to any t- type of misser? That's the word that he uses. Go back to Egypt. You know, if you're really so enamored with this way, instead of like being appreciative and grateful of the, the bounties that you have, you you miss the details while you forget the, the type of severe oppression that you were facing in Egypt. I want to pause here for a second. So in our first discussion, we learned that common causes of narcissism, whether it's a person or a group, is because of extremes, either extreme you know, feeding and inflating of the ego— right? Like the Sultan princess complex, right? You can do no wrong and you're basically a miracle to God's earth, etc. Or it's the other extreme of total dismantling of value and worth and honor of the human being, right? And in this case, Bani Israel was oppressed. They were abused. They were, you know, treated like um, objects by the Pharaoh and his power structures. So they have more of the defeatist mentality or psychology. So then after this, Musa goes through what he goes through, frees them from this oppression, and now they are in their own community, right? And they're trying to rebuild themselves. So I think it's just important to to bring in that aspect of, of this experience, because it's interesting how this manifests and how this connects to why is it that what is familiar is more comfortable. And this perhaps also suggests why, for instance, you know, in some cases, you'll have people who are abused in a marriage, they stay with that marriage, even though they because it's at least it's familiar and predictable. I know when they will attack me or beat me, or they will, you know, call me names, at least there's something familiar there. And you also mentioned a powerful point of one of the ways that we can generate a coping defense mechanism of our abuse uh, is that we become the abuser. So the racist becomes, uh, the, the one who has experienced racism becomes a racist in a different way, right? So for instance, you know, African Americans have experienced a lot of white supremacy. And as a response, and we found this, you know, until today, you have even racist uh, black uh, groups that are now against white people and everybody who isn't black. So you, right. so you do see this manifest in sociocultural political phenomena. Yes, absolutely. And and the example that's perfect that fits what you said is the Nation of Islam, which was a perversion of our religion for racist means for African Americans in this country, which we know that, you know, the, the famous 
people who left and came back to Sunni Islam are heroes like Malcolm X and, and W.D. Muhammad. Uh, may Allah have mercy on both of them. So it's, it's just so interesting to me to see these examples of the Quran and they're played out over and over again in front of us. And, you know, part of this is that it, the, our discussions will ultimately maybe be somewhat uncomfortable or political and, and, you know, you can stop me if it gets too much. But one thing that I wanted to mention specifically about the Jewish people in this day and age, which is interesting to me and, and not to be anti-Semitic in any way or form, is that the Jewish people in the mid-20th century suffered a massacre, mm -hmm. right? They suffered the Holocaust. Collective trauma. Collective trauma. And it's so interesting to me that in many ways, the same trauma is being played out with the Palestinian people. Just 50 years later, just 60, 70 years later, right. the same treatment, the same massacre, the same ghettoization is happening again. And it's like, what was the lesson? You know, did we not learn the lesson collectively uh, as as a, a people, you know, like all citizens of the world, that we are not going to let this happen again. When the Holocaust happened, there were many calls, the, the UN, uh, the, all these people, the human rights groups said that we just cannot let this happen again. And, and it's not just about the Palestinians. It's also about Muslims in India. It's about the Uyghurs in China. It's about a lot of people, and it's not just Muslims. Native Americans are still being oppressed to this day in the United States and in Canada. The other thing, or the next lesson, I guess, that I wanted to go into, if I may, is the victim may feel helpless, right? They say, like, well, I'm, I'm faced with this narcissist. They have a lot of social capital, political capital, etc. And one thing that I can do is, is I can try to get them to change, and, and like you mentioned in a marriage, this is very common in the examples that I've seen in marriages as, as a, a healer or a mental health practitioner. The wife or the husband will say something like, oh, well, you know, if I just tell him how much he's hurting me or if I just try to talk to him and be more cognizant of the way that I'm speaking, they'll understand, right? They'll understand what they're doing is not right and they can't behave like this and they can't treat me like this. The thing like we discussed earlier is that once this illness, uh, the problem of pride, the problem of narcissism gets severe enough, it's almost like there's a point of no return. We know in mental health that narcissistic personality disorder is almost probably always the most difficult thing to treat in psychotherapy because the behavior is a childhood defense mechanism which they have learned and perfected for decades. And you know, a few sessions of psychotherapy, even for months or even for years, you're not going to get good returns on those results. So with the victim, it's important to remember that all you can really do is have control over your own behavior. So when we look at the Quran again, what ultimately led Bani Israel to flee Egypt is that they reached a point of no re return with the people of Pharaoh. So they showed miracle after miracle with Musa al-Islam. There was two that are repeatedly mentioned in the Quran, like the, the staff turning into a snake and the hand um, becoming white without disease or illness. And then there were plagues that were sent on the people of Egypt. And the other interesting thing about that example in the Quran is that every time a plague came, whether it was like the blood or the frogs or the locusts, 
the the people of Egypt, uh, the political authority begged Musa al-Islam to make it stop. They actually said, just make it stop and we'll listen to you. We'll, you know, whatever demands you have, we'll reform ourselves. And then it would stop and then they would immediately go back to their own ways. SubhanAllah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just, just real power to completely kafar or cover up, which is the meaning of kufr, ladies and gentlemen. It's to cover up the truth, the blessings, to be an ingrate, a disbeliever, etc. But to just switch. And this is something I hear a lot too and have, you know, observed is like people will just go from here to here. Like, I hate you, you're this, and then the next thing, I want to have a kid with you. It's like, what the heck's going on? It's just, it's so illogical, the the, the framing that switches. Switch. Yeah, tell yeah. us more about this. What what happened eventually, right, in the story of, of the Bible and the Quran is that it required divine intervention. The sea swallowed Pharaoh and his army. And, of course, we, you know, after the prophets, we don't have grand miracles like this in our lives anymore that that can really be seen um, to that extent. You know, I still believe in personal miracles. I've, as a Muslim, I believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do whatever he wants. On that note, I believe that small personal miracles will happen once we, as whoever's being victimized, we learn to accept personal responsibility. We look at ourselves and whatever we're contributing to this situation, and then we take action to remove ourselves from harmful situations once we see that there's a point of no return. And this is actually the biggest lesson that I get from the drowning of Pharaoh. And, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on that as well, Brother Green, because you, you may have more experience with marital counseling. Do you see people who are, are stuck in narcissistic relationships, whether it's the husband or the wife, and and once you you get the the person who's not the narcissist to accept that they, there may be something that they're ex, that they're contributing to the situation and they're willing to do that, and then once you also understand or once the the spouse understands that there's nothing that I can do to change my narcissistic partner, that there are breakthroughs in that situation. You know, it's interesting. One of the first things I try to look for is oftentimes the person in the marriage who's constantly trying to sell that the other person is the narcissist. It's like, you know, sometimes it'll, you know, at the beginning it would take me time, you know, when I was, you know, perhaps younger and, and less experienced, I'd be like, what's going on here? This is I like, I, I knew, I, I know when I'm dealing with narcissism is when I'm, I end up feeling so confused, like at the end of every session with these, these couples, I'm just oh, like, I'm like, I can't, yeah. there's nothing logical or consistent about the claims, you know, like on the one, you just have again, extreme narratives, right? On the one hand, oh, they're so great. They're so this, they're so that. And then on the other hand, they're just the worst thing that ever happened to me. I've never seen any good from them. And I'm like, how are you able to switch from such extremes? So I noticed there's these extreme positionings, positions. I noticed that a lot of, uh, oftentimes when there is a strong projection of one spouse onto the other about narcissism or about all these bad things, it ends up that usually that person possesses more of those things. And I also noticed that the spouse that's more willing to accommodate, to change, to do things for the narcissist, you know, ends up suffering more, but is actually the one trying. Because again, a narcissist is not going to go out of their way to do something 
that they don't want to do or they don't think is going to make them look better, especially if it means saying sorry or, you know, you need to go get, you know, some special help for certain items. Right. So, you know, those are just some things that come up for me. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And and it almost even further makes it important for all of us to be on the lookout for our own traits. Right. Because it can it, it's so easy to get into these black and white types of situations where you say like, oh, well, the other person, my ex, you know, my girlfriend, my my husband, my wife, they're the problem. It's it's absolutely not me. And this is why this, 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 this is why. Um, and instead of having like that helpful self-awareness, that's a lot of which what I really want to talk about today is you can never really go wrong with having a lot of healthy self-awareness about your own behaviors. Right. Now, before we get into, you know, you can't force another person to change, period. And certainly it's much harder to do that when perhaps somebody has narcissism. Does this mean now that they require, let's say, childhood trauma therapy uh, to perhaps heal some of those wounds? Because how, I mean, how else do you have a good chance here? Because certainly CBT isn't enough alone. Um, maybe CBT with some powerful spiritual psychology and, and you know, tools from Ilm al-Nafs, let's say, you know, real purification of the heart program, you know, but it would be like, um, you know, heavy on, you know, uh, certain practices that, again, it would be very hard to convince a narcissist to drop everything and do this because they have to somehow recognize they have to improve or that they have these flaws. So is there actually a higher likelihood or chance for someone to be healed? Let's say if you, you know, combine childhood trauma therapy, CBT, spiritual psychology, I mean, what does it really take? Because it almost sounds a bit, um, you know, hopeless that like, hey, if someone's a narcissist, basically, you know, you're screwed and and they're screwed. And you all you got to do now is just protect and survive with yourself, which is what we're going to also talk about next. That's a really interesting point, Brother Green. And I also kind of reached that point of dread myself when I, I studied this in training, right, as a psychiatrist, because we were always taught like there's really nothing that you can do, which is is very like a very bleak view of the disorder from western psychology there could be nothing to do because their methods are absent of allah and the soul and you know these these practices that are found in um all spiritual and 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 religious practices right so from that side when you don't consider a ruh or a heart it could be very easy to come to that conclusion right the first thing that you said is is can Western psychology only go so far? And we, we specifically talked about CBT, right? Um, which for the audience is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically the most evidence-based form of therapy that we have in terms of getting people to accept change. There are times when in a Western model of psychiatry and psychology, you can help narcissists make small changes but it's only when they truly feel that their own grandiosity or image is threatened. And what I mean by that, for example, is that there's a lot of people in high management positions or in academia who suffer from this, right? Because it it's the perfect breeding ground for narcissism, just to have people praise you all the time, to admire your work, um, and what we see is that those same people, even though they're very hardworking, the, the narcissists in the department, 
they inevitably end up making enemies or have trouble with relationships because they they just cannot collaborate and cooperate, which is essential for any kind of organization. There are some times where I've seen some people who suffer from narcissism, maybe not the whole disorder, maybe they do have the full disorder where a boss or someone will sit down with them and say like, hey, if you don't shape up, we are going to fire you. And that breaks through to them. But it's usually there's some kind of severe consequence that they're facing. So we mentioned the Western model. So then, you know, there's a process of that person has to go to, you know, mandated anger management or cognitive behavioral therapy, what have you, whatever treatment modality which we have in the West. From an Islamic perspective, the thing that I find interesting, which is also what's being mentioned in the Quran is that a lot of the times, and, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us this, that he does this with us, is that he will send us tests in order to get us to wake up. So I know people, you know, Muslims who have had bad blood, you know, for years, for whatever reason, with their family or their spouse, etc., and they, they suddenly will get cancer, or they will get very sick, or they will lose a lot of financial you know goods in terms of like their stocks or what have you and and perfect example today the coronavirus right i mean we're all in a state of panic and, and total submission we should be to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we hope from an islamic paradigm that that would be enough to get someone to change the fear that i have though in that situation brother kareem to be completely honest with you is that sometimes just like with the example of pharaoh is that when that when that bala or when that adversity or trial is lifted, if you whatever you want to call it, like fitna, ibtila, bala, that same person may revert back to their own their old ways of being, right? So they'll have like this period of intense prayer or you know asking forgiveness from people that they offended or the boundaries that they cross and say like, oh please, you know, sister or brother, please forgive me, please auntie, uncle parents, forgive me, I was wrong to do this. And then suddenly their health will come back or, or their financial situation will improve and it's just back to square one. And then if in the case that that really happens, I feel like once that happens once, once that happens twice, it's almost like there's no hope. So you, you have like a couple of chances and these are blessings, right? I mean, like these are blessings that Allah gives us. He He tells us you're not supernatural you don't have all the power you're not omniscient you are not omnipresent i am in complete control you don't even have control over your own body and once someone understands that there's no room to be narcissistic but how how forgetful we are as human beings all of us that once that thing is lifted how are we really going to behave i'll give you an interesting example in the state of louisiana right now and and i love that the governor actually did this we have a, a catholic governor very religious the state is facing an unprecedented crisis with the coronavirus. The governor actually asked the people to participate in a day of fasting and prayer to lift the the illness, the disease. And this is happening in the West, you know, in the most advanced country in the entire world. The governor of a state is asking people to fast. What an, you know, such an Islamic concept and and really, you know, at this time people are starting to understand from a medical perspective, there are limited options in terms of people who are very sick with this illness. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that just like the 
you know, from what we understand, a lot of the causes of narcissism are in these extremes of, you know, extremes of damaging and distorting the reality of the human being and that they are spiritual beings having a human experience. We also need sometimes extreme measures or alarm bells or wake-up calls to try to snap the person out of it, let's say, right? And that's what Musa was trying to do with Pharaoh time and time again, but he just kept going back to his ghafla, his heedlessness and his veiling of the truth and just going back to, all right, now that things are comfortable, you know, the Nile isn't made of blood anymore, uh, back to being Pharaoh, right? It's like, no, 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 you're supposed to actually stop, right? Or start working on yourself. So you're, what I'm, what I heard you say was that these extreme kind of, you're either going to change out of powerful inspiration or powerful desperation, right? So if my, if my husband or my wife is like, you know, you come home from, from your, your job and there everyone, you know, you're, you're struggling with your professional relationships. Then you come home one day and your spouse and kids are gone. It's like they pack their bags and, and booted. It's like, wow, maybe this person may realize like there's something wrong with me, right? Everything around me is falling apart or people keep saying the same things over and over again and they have no connection. It's like if Larry's telling you the same thing as your husband or your wife, then there's probably mm-hmm. some truth to that or some reflection that you should give, right? So so that's what I'm hearing you say is extreme measures or extreme alarm bells are one of the ways that you can perhaps have a chance of snapping people out of it. But if several of those happen, like in the case of Pharaoh, and you still give not even a marginal adjustment towards purification of the heart and the self, then basically you're in really bad shape, if not, if not screwed, right? Completely. not screwed right completely you're in really bad trouble that's that's a really good summary of what i said it's it's just not it's not an easy thing to deal with and and i wish that i had better answers for people but another thing that i would add if i may is as a community because like we mentioned in the first session this is a community mental health issue it affects a lot of people not just the narcissist themselves by definition as a community if we are better at policing budding narcissists, and we are less accepting of their behaviors, we can at least mitigate the damage amongst ourselves. And what I mean by that is, say, for example, you have uh, someone who is aspiring for leadership of some kind or a position of some kind, and people are saying like, oh, hey, you know, by the way, he's abusive to women, like, you know, he he touches people inappropriately, etc. And the powers that have you ignore that anyway right? You're just feeding the narcissist. You're making it harder for that person to change. You're making it harder for them to say. You're enabling them. Yeah. You're, you're enabling them, right? Like you're saying like, oh, well, that's, that's okay. But, but, you know, he's a, a Sayyid, you know, he's related to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
so there's nothing that we can do. Yeah, and he's and he's a surgeon, and he's oh rich. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like all these all these you know markers that we use in our community to signify status, right? He's a hafiz. He's this. He's that. He's related to this person. He has this kind of like career accomplishment. Um, so interesting. Very interesting to delve into. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I remember once somebody reached out to me on behalf of another person who was one of these kind of community figures and they were contacting me saying, look, we need you to help this gentleman who has, you know, basically he has like a porn addiction and, but he is a, um, they were, he was described as a sought out imam and speaker of the community and he's this and he's that. And the guy was like pitching what you're saying. Right. And I was like, I was like, that's, uh, I'm like, and you know, I, I was just so very, matter of fact, I was like, and, and what? He's still a human being who now has a porn addiction. And that's why you're calling me because he needs human help like everybody else. And that person didn't like my response and they didn't continue with the effort, at least with me. But it was, it was, it, it, that came up for me when you were describing this. I was like, yeah, I could, I, I saw that happen on multiple occasions and including sometimes like, when you want to actually help somebody who's in this state, but then you're still enabling the narcissist along the way of them trying to get treatment for whatever problems they have. So, okay, we can't, our job isn't necessarily, or at least our audience's job is not to sit here and try to force anyone to change that does exist in their lives who may have narcissism, but we can help our own psychological condition by enforcing boundaries with people. So let's talk more about this, Dr. Osman. What exactly are these boundaries? Is it the same as hudud in Islam? And, and what, is, what is the advice or the tips that we can learn from this um, Islamic concept? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hudud is a really interesting concept in itself, which we can go into. The first thing that I really want to bring home is that boundaries are an Islamic concept, psychological boundaries with people. And I'm going to give you examples from the Quran and the Hadith. In Surah Nur, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we are not supposed to enter people's houses other than our own until we ask permission from them. O you who believe, enter not houses other than your own until you have asked permission and greeted those in them. That is better for you in order that you may remember the translation of the ayah. The, the next ayah that I want to go into, which I won't read in its completion, but basically in, in Surah Al-Ahzab, which goes over a lot of the etiquette that we should have with the Prophet Sallallahu there's an ayah, uh, ayah 53, which basically says, don't enter the apartments of the Prophet except when you're permitted to eat. And when you're finished eating, leave, basically. Um, and Allah is not shy of the truth. And when you ask things from his wives, ask them behind a partition. And... The reason that I bring this up, the first example, obviously, from Surah Nur is, is general for everybody, right? Like we're supposed to have a, a sense of sanctity of other people's dwellings. The second example is specifically for the Prophet, but I do believe that this could be applied for all of us in many ways. When we are with someone, we're not supposed to inconvenience them. When we are friends with someone and we are speaking to their spouse, propriety is of the utmost. And why is this? The, the house, the spousal relationship, because this is where family units are formed, right? This is where shaitan goes haywire and tries the best to destruct and cause his fitna 
which we know that he loves when people separate, he loves when people divorce. And a lot of the reasons why that happens is because of outside interference. So Allah is basically saying in the Quran that don't cause problems for people. You know, don't have a sense of what is yours and what is another person's, you know, family life, personal life, private life, finances, etc. So let's not forget this. And the reason that I bring this up as well, which, you know, for whatever reason, my culture, at least as, as a Desi, as a second generation Indo-Pak American, we just don't emphasize this enough. And I don't, I don't know why. I really don't understand why. Um, there, there have been so many times, you know, where I've struggled with this, where I've had people come to me and say, like, look, you know, like, we just we don't have a sense of boundaries in our culture, you know, and I'm like, I agree, you know, like, so um, and then what you mentioned about the hudud, if I may add briefly, is that the hudud, like, you know, that's a word had literally means just like limit, right, in Arabic. But the hudud are, are specifically associated with punishments, right? Like the, the hudud laws for, for zina, for adultery, for rape, for stealing, etc. And like we have like this really kind of uh, harsh image uh, that is in the West about like hands getting cut off and stoning and things like that. But if you really look at it, hudud punishments and had in Islam is a way to preserve the the psychological safety, the honor, and the physical and proprietary safety of people, and and that I mean, and they're they're punishments that are used by example, right? Like we know that it's very hard to enact the punishment. It's very hard to have four people witness sexual intercourse between two people, which is the requirement. In other words, it has to be an extreme manifestation of dishonor and immorality for the for the apparently extreme had to be implemented. Exactly. Yeah. The ayah of Surah An-Nur and uh, the other and Ahzab. I, I want to comment on that real quick because this is so poignant that you bring this up because it really does demonstrate number one social etiquettes and adab with your community, with your family, and even kids with their parents. Like for instance, there's certain times of the day when your parents' rooms' doors are closed. You don't go in there. You don't knock. You don't bother them. Right? It's like the time before Fajr, the the noon time, and I think the third time is in the evening after, after Isha, uh, I think after Isha, yeah. which is fascinating because these are also the, the most common times that couples are spending private time together. Right. And so it, it's like Allah is giving us these etiquettes. And certainly when it came to the prophet, because he's a Rahman, he, he's manifestation of a Rahman is greater than any other human being. So he would be the type of host who he's not going to tell you, all right, guys, get out of my house. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. You know, which is what some of us are thinking when we have that friend who it's 3 a.m. And they're like still asking, you know, what are we doing next? It's like, <laughs> dude, go home, you know. Yeah. And so it's subhanAllah. It's like it shows you that. When people are so self-absorbed, they have disconnected from the needs and the comforts of others. And this is something that the Quran is reminding us of. And you were commenting also on this idea of boundaries and people meddling and people controlling and people thinking they have charge or power or say over something they actually don't. Like what you're going to do with your wife or what you're going to wear or if you're how you're going to spend every weekend of your your life, right? It's like... 
you know, people, this is sometimes how it perhaps manifests in these cultural enabling cycles of lacking boundaries in our relationships. And certainly that's the sanctity and privacy and autonomy, uh, autonomous culture that every family and couple deserves to, uh, to grow it becomes um, undermined, and that can create now resentment and disconnect within the families, perhaps. Right, absolutely. I can't tell you how much resentment exists when we have people in our lives who cross these boundaries repeatedly without any kind of consequences. It's, it's just psychologically very, very unhealthy. And how does this tie to narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder is because it's in general very hard for narcissists to respect people's boundaries. And you may ask why. Why is that? It's because when someone is entitled to that degree and demands that type of attention and praise, they're really not going to see you as a human being with their own agency, with their own thoughts, feelings, wishes, and desires. So like even when you speak up and you say like, hey, you know, auntie, I really cannot come at this time or I, I need you to be more respectful about when you're coming over to our house – they typically will rea react with rage because it's like, what is this object telling me of how I should behave, right? Like they're going to see you as like a table or a cell phone or something like, you know, if my cell phone spoke back to me, I'd be like, what? You know, I'd just be like, what's going on, you know? Um, so that's why the narcissist is going to have a lot of trouble with you enacting those boundaries. But for your own safety, for your own psychological health, it's necessary. Some example actually that I can think of that's really wild is narcissists, and this is, you know, I've heard this on a couple of occasions over the years, they're the types of people who, even if you're praying, they'll talk to you. About their own their own garbage. Hey, where's my where am, where are my keys? Or uh, how come you made rice when I said I wanted pasta? And it's like the person is in is praying. Yeah. And the person and the narcissist is so self absorbed. They're not even acknowledging that boundary of like, oh, this person is praying. I should like keep it quiet. And they'll just stand there or and wait for you to be done. It's like there's people like who act like this in in relationships and families. Um, and of course, the notion of you know, when you have, I've heard so many horror stories when it comes to in-laws, right? And the way that narcissism manifests and damages the relationship or even the courtship, you know, it's like the, let's say you have the narcissistic mom or dad of a person I want to marry. And the, the parents, you know, if you don't do something that they don't, if you do something they don't like, they will now call your parents and say, my daughter or my son is not marrying your kid because they're this and they're this and they're that. And they're just talking about their, how their own narcissism was rubbed the wrong way because you didn't, you know, worship them the way they wanted. And then they tell the parents that, uh, my, my, my child is not marrying your child because your child isn't good. And they're just projecting all their own narcissism onto the child, right? Or the son or the daughter. And then the son and daughter are actually doing great together. But the but the parents with the narcissism basically sabotage, hijack, and destroy what could be a halal, healthy, and beautiful future of two people. Th this can also happen, Doctor Osman. Is that correct? Because I've seen. Oh it. yeah, I've seen this all the time. It's it's astounding how many times where interference from in laws ruins perfectly healthy relationships. Sadly enough. Right. So let's talk more about practically how do we establish boundaries in our families or with our, you know, extended families that we may have, 
experience some of this, uh, these things that we're talking about. So how do we start doing this? What does it mean to have boundaries in the home? How does that practically look? And let's build off of these ayat and, and Surah Al-Ahzab and Surah Al-Nur to do so. Absolutely. I think one thing that we should focus on for as as far as us as people who accept the sanctity of the Quran is if you have someone in your life who is not being respectful of what you're asking, you can point to these ayat and say basically like, okay, you know, I know that you pray and you fast and you're doing all these things, but hey, listen, like, you know, we have this example in the Quran and I'm just, I'm not just making this up. This is not me being an entitled person raised in the West. This is something that we really need to focus on. And this is something that as a culture, we can also change, you know, in terms of like being Pakistanis or Indians or Egyptians or what have you, you know, they're, there should be a level of self-awareness where we can realize that, hey, there are things in our, in, that are happening back home which are not aligning perfectly with the divine mission. So if that's a conversation that you can have with someone, I would definitely go there. And it's just always helpful because a lot of people will say like, oh, well, that's just an arbitrary thing. You know, like you're just being selfish or entitled and you can say, no, like I have this, I have this backup from our tradition and what i'm saying is actually justified through our tradition so what are, what boundaries are we looking at we're looking at the sanctity of your home which we established in these two ayat we're looking at your personal life which is also by def, by by extension established your personal time with your family with your wife with your children the sanctity of the spousal relationship which we have established it should not be interfered with by anyone including your own parents or your in-laws it also, I would say, includes having the courage to request and demand good behavior and freedom from insults, attacks, what have you. Um, like this other example in the Quran that I can state in Surah 49, Ayah 11, O oh, you who believe, let not a group scoff at another group. It may be that the latter are better than the former, and it goes on and on. And not includes not to defame people, not to insult people, not to use nicknames, which are offensive. Um, and it ends by saying, how bad is it to insult one's brother after having faith? So it's almost like, you know, we have to have the maturity as Muslims who have either accepted this religion as converts or people who were born into this religion and have a generational history of being in Islam that, hey, you know, sometimes we're just not doing right in terms of the the mamalat, you know, like our personal dealings with other people. And it's okay to call that out and it's okay to demand a better standard. It's most likely that when you establish this boundary with someone, say for example, you say like, hey, after 11 p.m. I really don't like visitors because we pray Isha and then we go to sleep. The narcissist, like I said, is not going to react with with a, a sense of like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that. They they most likely will say things like, oh, you know, either be emotionally manipulative or get angry. You know, they may say things like, oh, but I'm your your mom or I'm just like your mom or I'm just like your sister or I'm your brother. I'm your best I'm your friend. Best friend. Yeah, whatever. How come I can't do this with you? For, you know, example, example, etc. The other thing that always, you know, kind of makes my alarm bells ring, Brother Kareem, to be honest with you is someone who, when you establish a relationship with them, gets overly familiar from the get-go without the, the type of 
relationship really existing there in the first place. What I mean by that is someone who will say like, oh, well, I, I, you know, we're sisters in Islam or we're brothers in Islam. So that means that I should have access to your bank account. Or that means that I can, you know, have this type of like, you can loan me money at this time, right? Or I can, you know, even have a personal relationship with your with your wife because we're just brothers, you know? So, so, so you mean like ex, ex, assigning extreme value of the relationship when there's absolutely no basis or substance to it? Exactly, exactly. There's no substance. They immediately become overly familiar with you. And then they start taking advantage or they want to be right. They say things like, oh, well, you know, we're so close. We've been friends for so long, this and that. And then their real aim is to use you. Right. Um, The other thing to be careful about, which I really want to stress, which we did talk about earlier a bit as well, is that just because someone has a title, just because someone is sheikh or doctor or molana or molvi or sayyid, peer, murshid, it does not absolve them of the boundaries that we have that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Quran or whatever you feel comfortable with. It doesn't even have to be something that is fully established. But if you feel violated, then you should speak up. And and I would hope that other people around you would accept that you feel violated and support you. The thing that happens often in the reverse is that the, the Pir, Molana, Murshid, will use their title to be abusive, to be exploitative. And then there's a sense of just hush everyone around them and says like, oh, well, we can't question them. And and I have a real problem with that because if the Prophet ﷺ did not exploit his power over his community, then there is absolutely no reason for anyone else to do so. Right? And I give you this example in the Quran is that in Surah Al-Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked the Prophet to actually consult other people around him in the matters that he is presented with. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in translation, and when you have decided, then rely upon Allah. Indeed, Allah loves those who rely upon him. So what I mean by that is that if the Prophet the best of creation, the one we believe was sent as the last prophet of mankind, the one with the special status, the the best human among all of us. He was asked to consult other people. He he was not he was not given special privileges in terms of being abusive or oppressive, and in some ways he was actually asked to right. do more. Very very humble, very humbling, not narcissistic setup right there. Right, very humbling, very humbling. And the the other example that I can think of, which I absolutely love, is that in the the last juz in in Surah Abasa, right. The exchange there where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet of what he did wrong in terms of preaching the message of Islam. When he turned away from the blind man and focused on the leaders in his community, the Quraysh, the, the, you know, the powerful people, when the blind man was only asking him more about Islam. And, and the, the amazing thing to me about that is it's not even it was like really turning away, but it was maybe, according to the tafsir, just like a look that the Prophet had and something that the blind man could not even interpret because he wasn't even like visually equipped to do that. But still, just that look, just that 
kind of Brief kind of exchange. like yeah like I, I can't deal with you right now i'm in the middle of this conversation kind of look which we've all given you know exactly yeah, yeah exactly we've all done that we've all done that and he's asked to correct himself based on that so to me to me as uh as someone who speaks about this who who thinks about this if you have that religious figure who feels he is beyond questioning i would just run honestly i would just be like i'm not interested in what you have to offer me because you're not being prophetic bismillah rahman rahim laqad kana lakum fi rasulillahi uswatun hasana uswatun hasanatan liman kana yarju allaha dhakan yarju allaha wal yawm al akhira wa dhakara allaha kathira which is which is a really good model right there right those who have raja for allah right those who think about the akhira and those who are um uh, remembering the divine presence often, right? And recalling and making mention of that. What also comes up for me is this sheds light, Dr. Osman, on is that some Muslims will see everything that is against their community or their members or this as, oh, it's all a conspiracy of Islamophobia. It's like, no, sometimes it's Allah calling us out to sharp, to refine our own collective ego. And this extends to our families and our ethnicities and our cultures and our nationalities. It's like, and maybe this connects to why a lot of us are so focused on appearing perfect, appearing religious, appearing good and better, and we're so we're such a great family, and blah blah blah. And it's like you would actually have more people would see Islam as more true, not if you give off this fake uh, cell that we're just so perfect and we do no wrong constantly, but rather if you're actually like we stand up to the truth even if it's against ourselves, which is exactly what Islam teaches us, from my understanding. Yes, yes, 100%. I I totally agree with that. It's and the reason why this is even more damning when it comes to religious figures is that the the false narratives, the delusions, that that's the exact opposite of what dawah needs from us, right? Like if we as a community can be authentic, if we can be vulnerable, if we can be open, if we can be in touch with non-Muslims and their challenges, I, I can tell you, I mean, these people around us, they're thirsty for the truth. They want it, right? But then they see, like, the, the you know, rules and weird hierarchy and, like, victim mentality, defense mechanisms, immaturity, and, and they don't want that, you know? People are naturally attracted to the truth. People are naturally attracted to what is authentic, what is real, what is compassionate. And what is beautiful. Ihsan. And what is beautiful. Yeah. Ihsan, right? And the opposite is true. We're not attracted or pulled in by what is ugly, false, oppressive, ignorant, and mm -hmm. so forth. Right. So another thing that people will ask me, um, which is problematic and, and for a lot of people, is what if the narcissist is in my family, right? And then, you know, we talked a lot about marriage, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always given us the option of separation, right, or divorce, if you really feel like there's no hope. And and that is a viable option for a lot of people that I don't feel like should be, you know, punished or looked down on. Um, it's it's something that the Sahaba did. It's something that a lot of people very close to the Prophet used when they felt that there was no other way out. But what if it's your father? What if it's your mother? What if it's your sister? What if it's your brother? Especially looking in the sense of Muslims being asked repeatedly in the Quran to be incredibly 
righteous and well-mannered to their parents. And I quoted this hadith for you that in, in terms of just a Muslim brother in general, it is not halal or permissible to avoid them or forsake them for more than three days, each of them turning away from the other when they met. The better of them is the one who gives the greeting of salam first. This is in Al-Bukhari. So Islam does give a lot of importance on family ties, but what I would say, Brother Kareem, and, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts as well, is that the meaning of family ties is really very loose. And it's what makes you feel comfortable and psychologically healthy as well. So definitely you are not maintaining family ties if you see someone and you shun them or you look the other way or you make a face or you don't greet them with salam back or you uh, refuse to you know, pick up people's phone calls or, or answer messages, etc. But as long as you are being pleasant and courteous in your approach, as long as you're offering help to your family, if you have the capacity to do so, then I really feel like you are fulfilling this definition of keeping ties. And the reason that I say this is that there's a lot of guilt that I feel from young Muslims that, that come to me who say that, oh, you know, my mom or my dad said, if I don't visit my aunt every, every week, then I'm breaking ties with them. Or, you know, other things which, you know, could be completely ridiculous based on the circumstances. There's just a lot of guilt about people being forced to be very, very close with people who hurt them. And, and I just, I really don't feel like this is the message of Islam, which is helpful to people, right? We have to, we have to realize that there will be people in our immediate family who will do things that are very hurtful to us. And the response is not to always ignore this and just brush it over. And this goes into the next point that I have, is that if you can do something about it, if you can do something about an injustice, especially if you're in a position of power, then you should, right? Um, remember that your position of leadership is a trust from Allah, which you'll be asked about on the Day of Judgment. What I mean specifically here is, is mashallah, you know, Brother Kareem, you have children. Allah give your children health and, and you know, a lot of emotional, spiritual, intellectual well-being physical if you know god forbid one of your children becomes you know very oppressive to the other your your role as a father is going to be to educate fairly between them and there's a lot of parents who refuse to do that a lot of parents play favorites which is also against the the message of islam which, which is something that the prophet sallallahu specifically spoke against in the hadith that if you give then you should give to your children equally so we can't control our feelings, right? But at least on the surface, we show people that we are going to be fair to them if we are in charge of them. And what this goes into is is this ayah in Surah 49, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the translation, in case two sections of believers fight each other, then make a righteous reconciliation between them both. Then in case one of them is inequitable to the other, then fight the one that is inequitable until he concedes to the command of Allah. So in case they concede, then make a reconciliation between them both with justice and be equitable. Surely Allah loves the equitable ones. So um, the way that I see this come up in terms of family dynamics, community dynamics, work dynamics, is that there, there will be some kind of like bullying going on or narcissistic behaviors. And um, one way it's brushed under the rug is, oh, just forgive them, right? Just forgive them. It's okay you know, at the end of the day, they're your family or, you know, it just, 
and and to me it's like that's the cop out right that's like oh like someone's coming to you to uh, for a sense of re- reconciliation or justice or you know establishing the truth and your answer is let's cover it up nakaffar <laughs> yeah yeah right so and then but then the the answer that i get from a lot of people from um authority figures is well you know forgiveness is a part of islam right and i totally accept that as well and forgiveness is the high road but at the same time forgiveness is a personal decision and and for me it goes against the ethos of of what we preach or what we live to force someone to forgive when they're not emotionally and spiritually ready to do that and when they are trying to seek justice from you and this is especially poignant in cases where there is a real abuse of power which can be proven and which can be taken to court and what i mean by that is like sexual or physical abuse um if if someone is being sexually abused and you cover that up which does happen all the time unfortunately you're and I you're hear enabling this. the sin and you're a partner in crime in my opinion. exactly exactly you're a partner in crime and the thing which make this more serious even than emotional abuse is that there there is like a physical intentional violation of someone else's body and emotional abuse just does not really it can be just as hurtful for a lot of people it can it can leave emotional scars but i feel personally that you know a lot of times with these emotional abuse cases it's it can be hard to prove it can be tricky to pin down and and i hope that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will really give people recompense for the emotional issues that they face but the least that we can do right as a community is look at these physical cases and really be like we do not tolerate this in any way shape or form themselves, all of them had family members that went against them, even though they were the best of those family members. The prophets were, right? You have cases where the wives disbelieved and went against them, the husbands, the children, the in-laws, the uncles, the aunts, and so forth, right? So this, again, is, uh, to me, it's one of the proofs that just because they're family doesn't mean they're on the right page, okay? They could be wrong and they could be harmful. They could even be evil. Second is this idea of forgiveness. Uh, It is a higher virtue, but like you said, it's a personal choice. And definitely it is not, in my opinion, sound to veil someone else's sins that are constantly affecting and have serious ripple effects of harm towards others, like covering up an abuser whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, um, for the sake of keeping that person's reputation or, no, that's my uncle, I can't, nobody can know that he sexually abused, you know, me and my sister. It's like, no, you have, those people, they don't deserve veiling, okay, and forgiveness. And that's why they keep abusing people. 
right? Because they're not, they're not, they're enabled. And this idea of give 70 excuses for your sister and brother, which is a famous hadith that people often use. Look, I want to qualify that. And again, this is just Kareem's opinion, and I could be wrong. But the way I see it is, you make 70 excuses for your brother and sister, that's number one, for somebody that you really know well, right? So if Osman, you know, you don't show up three times for lunch that we were supposed to have together, I should be making excuses for you because I know you as a person and that that's something off about you. That wouldn't be, but if it's somebody I don't know, you know, and they, uh, you know, after three strikes, they keep hurting you or manipulating you or using you, then you don't apply the excuses anymore because then you're just being a knucklehead. You've got to use the evidence, which is the last three times they totally harmed me. So I'm not giving them any more excuses. And this is what sometimes we get caught up in with a narcissist is like, all right, this time they'll change. This time they said they'll, you know, they won't act like this, or I want to believe that they can get better. But then you just keep getting smashed right? With whatever abuse is happening. So forgiveness, ladies and gentlemen, like all virtues, in my opinion, whether it's being open and honest, being patient, uh, being forgiving, you need to also connect all virtues to other virtues. And I would say wisdom is one of the most important ones because wisdom, in my opinion, is it's how we maximize benefit and reduce harm when we forgive, when we're patient, when we're being honest or not, and so forth, right? You have to have wisdom and hikmah for these things, because if you deliver forgiveness or truth naked, in, in, a, in you know, without wisdom, let's say, or intellect, you actually could be causing more harm. Simple example, if I'm totally brutally honest with my wife, I'm like, look, I, I think your cooking sucks. I've never liked it, you know? That I'm, I might be being honest and sincere, but come on, that's going to hurt her. And, and I'm not going to eat a good meal for the rest of my life. So is that really maximizing benefit and reducing harm? No. Is forgiving my abuser over and over again and tomorrow they do it again, is that wisdom? No. So I think this is a point on that. And certainly when it comes to our elders and the in-laws, you know, it's challenging. But I agree with you that sometimes people will feel really guilty about, look, Brother Kareem, and I've, I've had someone just ask me this this week. They say, look, Brother, I'm cutting this person off because they are narcissistic, they are abusive, they are this. Am I doing something Islamically wrong? Because this is an elder in my family and this person's younger. And it's like, and I, and I honestly was like, no, I don't believe you are. And the bottom line is, is if Allah was going to take you tomorrow and ask you about your choice, do you feel more sound and grounded in defending that position? Or would you feel uh, that, you know, enabling them and pretending like everything's fine and continuing to take their abuse is what Allah actually wants you to do as a person? Of course not, right? So you got to really also think about that and not all the pressure of other members of your family that maybe themselves are not fully attuned into a holistic understanding of what it means to be human or Muslim or to have ihsan and so forth. So these aren't people to give you the best of advice anyways because they're also stuck in their enabling loop of uh, you know, customs and practices which could be more damaging than healing or, or growing you know, the family. So I just wanted to share those points on what you shared and uh, we can, inshallah, talk more about um, how to make narcissism less of a problem in our communities. Inshallah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I, those were wonderful insights that you had with a lot of experience, which um, I really appreciate. So I'm going to go into the summary of what we talked about in terms of making narcissism less of a problem in our communities. In my opinion, First and foremost, if you have someone who comes to you as a victim, if they 
identify themselves as a victim, it's always important to listen and validate. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with them 100% about what happened, but you can be someone who holds emotional space for them and helps them heal just by your presence and being non-judgmental. But one thing that I would always stress for people who are victims, for myself, for anyone who's been faced with a narcissist, is also to root out your own ego blocks and accept personal responsibility. And what I mean by that as an example is, say for example, I go to work and I show up and I'm 30 minutes late. And my quote-unquote narcissistic boss yells at me for 15 minutes straight about my, you know, incompetence, etc. You know, he may be completely unfounded to do that, but I still have to accept my personal responsibility about the mistake that I made. Right, like a, a bad doesn't cancel out another bad. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, even if the bad that was met in response is completely overblown, let's all just look at what we're doing in terms of individuals, families, communities as an ummah, and really sit down and be like, what's what's the issue? Why am I a victim? Or why am I being victimized like this? And sometimes the answer is there's nothing you're doing wrong, right? And we should accept that as well, that there are many times where victims are completely helpless and they have done nothing to deserve their situation, quote unquote. But there are times when that is not the case. Right. And for couples, you know, and family, I think just a good example would be, you know, you point out something that a spouse did, which was very harmful or hurtful to you. And, uh, but the way you do it or deliver that critique is very uh, negative. Okay. That's when the other spouse doesn't basically take responsibility for the wrong they did because now they're just focused on the poor delivery. And that's what you're saying, right? How it works is like on some level, we have to recognize that, all right, the person might be emotional. They might be upset. They might be angry. But let me really focus on the fact that I did screw up or mess up with this particular item, despite, you know, how they're reacting or respond, um, you know, responding to, to it. You follow? So that's what you're saying, yes. telling us here. Yes, 100%. Yeah. The second thing that I would talk about or focus on, what we discussed in detail, is that give up the illusion of changing a narcissist. Hopefully, Allah can help them, but that's a journey that they, they have to take the first step. The first step being some type of self awareness. What you can do personally to make yourself feel better right now as a victim or someone who's being affected affected is to enforce the psychological boundaries that you have to reduce your suffering. And we talked about rules about your home, rules about what and what is not acceptable with your relationship, Most like the most important one being the marriage relationship, rules about the way that people can speak to you. And these are all things that when confronted with a narcissist, who says like, oh, well, how could you say this? Or, or, you know, why are things changing now? Why can't I take advantage of you? Which is what may, they may be thinking subconsciously. You just point to the beauty of our religion, right? And you say like, this is where this says this. As long as you are, at both, both of you are claiming to come from the same vantage point of believing in the Quran, then we can always use the Quran to assert our own need for psychological boundaries, but what if the person, you know, yeah, because we know us, man, there are people who pray and, you know, when it's Eid time, it's very festive. But 
they're not really people who, let's say, will take the Quran in that way, like a like a, 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 a like a dose of real medicine. You know, they they may you know they may even get angry that you're oh you're trying to compare me to Pharaoh in the Quran, and it's like yeah, that's why you're narcissistic, right? Because you can't even see it, right? But it's scary. But I agree that if people claim to be Muslim or or have iman that bringing it back to the Quranic reflections is important because if there is a seed of iman in us, inshallah, there will be some khair in just trying to listen and not, you know, react, but try to really listen and take it in. And I also wanted to add that some people might think, well, you know, the whole family or, or dis, um, disconnecting from family for this for the sake of safety, it's like, well, that's something that the early communities of every prophet did as well, right? It's like, yes. I don't, you know, I left my parents because I want to follow the prophet, Sallallahu But it's like, well, Kareem, they were kuffar and mushrikeen and it was clear. And it's like, yeah, but today people might have a, you know, label of being born Muslim. They may do some of the external acts that reflect cultural Islamicism, if you will. But if they are practicing or living things that are, um, you know, reflect principles of kufr and ignorance and oppression and evil, then it doesn't matter because it's about the behavior or the pattern that exists, despite the labels and the names that we may have in our families. This is very important, ladies and gentlemen. You have to cut through you know, the appearance of things and always check around the reality of things. That's why if a guy has a long beard and wears, you know, a, a, a turban every day, but he treats people in his community or privately like garbage or abuses them, I don't care how much Quran they have memorized and how much certificates they have on their wall from India and Egypt. I don't. Because in the end of the day, just remember, if we die now, right, Where's that person going to be and where am I going to be, right? And that's how we've got to approach things because none of us are guaranteed the next hour. And so Absolutely. when you approach things in this very, I want to say, um, hyper-cautious perception of is this aligned with the Islamic values or not, this is going to help us perhaps feel at least less guilty about making some of these hard boundaries established in our lives. Right, right. Those are very good points. Very, very good points. I would say, you know, to your question about whether, you know, someone's just a, like a cultural Muslim and you you really can't use the Quran with them to reason with them. You can always say, you know, things like this is what makes me and my family comfortable because at the end of the day there is something that hopefully they will be able to understand, right? Um for people who their sense of morality does not come from the Quran. The, the other thing that is very popular these days is just a, a sense of like, I have an innate sense of goodness within me with a morality, the fitra, which we recognize as well as Muslims, that all of us have a conscious, all of us have a way to access good inside of us. And you can always say that, you know, you can always say to anyone who is crossing a boundary in your life, hey, that doesn't, that doesn't make me feel good. And please stop. And I would hope, you know, I I would hope that anyone who is on the receiving side would be like, whoa, 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 okay, yeah, sure, that wasn't my intention. And and to be honest with you, like when I talk about this, I think about ways which I have crossed boundaries with people. To be completely frank, 
um, where someone has been like, hey, you know, Usman, I, I know that you had a good intention. I'll give you an example. Like I had a friend back in the day when I was in college and he um, he was a Boy Scout, right? And he like finished and did like his Eagle Scout. And like that just was not like part of my experience ever. And I thought it was kind of cute. And so I was just like poking fun at him. And then he got really serious and he said to me, Osman, like, I, I really don't like you making fun of my experience in the Boy Scouts. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, I, you know, it was all in good fun. But really, like, I, I didn't mean anything bad by it. And, and I won't say anything again. Right. And this is important, Osman, because you got to you, you're, you're saying this point of sometimes people. So, again, if you're making fun of your buddy or you're busting their chops, it doesn't mean you're automatically a narcissist. Sometimes we're just right. we're just unaware right. <laughs> of our insensitivity. Right. Sometimes we're not wrong. We just didn't have the right information. And that's why it's important that if you feel this is happening to you, please communicate. Please, please. If this person is an actual friend or family member, you should be able to say, look, this is bothering me. Look, this is making me uncomfortable. Look, I'm, I don't feel, uh, you know, safe when you say or do these things because that's a sign of a, a healthy relationship, right? And so don't expect people to be mind readers because we're not. And so if I keep doing something and nobody ever says this is a problem, then I'll probably keep doing the problem which is going to make a bigger problem. So thank you for that right. personal absolutely. example. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, we we all have ways, uh, myself included, which we, we can always learn and grow. Um, and I say this, like I said earlier, more as someone who's studied and not someone who is morally superior. <laughs> but um, the third thing that I would say, which we talked about, is that if the narcissist is in your family, and you're getting a lot of pressure from people to keep ties for religious reasons or for social and cultural reasons, remember that sinfulness is cutting ties completely. Limiting contact is sometimes the only option and does not make you a bad person. So whatever you feel comfortable doing, as long as the other person has a sense that you are still maintaining some kind of relationship with them, then as far as I understand, you're in the green, you're in the clear. And, and like what you said as well, I mean, sometimes even that is really not feasible for people for whatever reason. And, and I hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have mercy on us and understand. And the example that I can really think about is it's really hard to be completely honest with you. It's really hard to have a functioning relationship with a family member who has sexually abused you. Not that this has happened to me. But I've heard of it enough and I've treated enough people with this problem where I'm like, there's no way that it's healthy for you to have a closer relationship with your uncle if he raped you. Right. And to pretend like everything's fine and, and everyone's forcing you to smile and be nice and sweet, which is a sad reality for some. It's a sad reality. And and I I would hope that, you know, the, the concept in Islam of like there's there's no harm, right? like no darar in our religion that we take this seriously and we really i would hope one day like i want to sit down with some ulama and really understand this like what what is the limit in terms of cutting people off in your family but in the meantime if whatever you can do to reduce the harm for yourself and for your community try your best to do that and that's just wisdom that's just wisdom. Maximizing benefit and, and, and healing and reducing harm and pain. That's part of hikmah.
right? The other thing that I, you know, I kind of wanted your opinion on, I, um, if I could, um, at this time, is that a lot of the reason I think, you know, our parents, Brother Green, will will stress this a lot, like in terms of like being in touch with family, in the importance of that, and um, how necessary it is, is because as immigrants or as people who came from communal cultures, that was our support system more than anything else, right? So that immediacy of being in touch with people, being close to people who you may not even like, it was really like a survival mechanism. Um, and so that same type of you know, urgency of being in touch with people who you may not even like is, is not necessarily the case in like a, an environment in the West where we have a lot of resources, a lot of things at our disposal in terms of good jobs, good health, inshallah, you know, good uh, living situations. But sometimes it, it is helpful to me personally to at least understand where the older generations are coming from, right? And sometimes it, it makes more sense to me than I would like to admit, right? Like, for example, like with this current coronavirus pandemic, the thing that makes most sense to me at this time, if you have older family, is to take care of them and be with them and reduce you know, their exposure to the outside world. Because we know as, as healthcare providers, actually the people who are dying the most are people who live in nursing homes. Because it's so easy to spread like a bunch of old people living together and they have very little immune system to help them from the virus. Again, I feel like the central theme of a lot of our discussion could perhaps be reduced to extremes, whether it's extreme collective and family emphasis where the individuality drowns out. And in the West, you have extreme individuality and delusion of independence, which is, you know, not the case for anybody in reality. Um, and family doesn't matter, right? I'm going to do whatever I want, right? So I think that Islam always says, the middle is always closest to the truth, or at least it's the best place to try to calibrate towards, right? So absolutely, there is, and again, we're not, a, this discussion isn't, is about narcissistic family members, right? It's not about family in general, right? So, um, and depending on the relative, you're going to treat people differently. Like some of them, you may be like, look, I don't, this uncle is just annoying. Like he has all these weird jokes, but the guy never abused me. He never abuses anybody. He's just one of those like, you know, awkward guys that, you know, I wouldn't spend time with him all, uh, you know, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with him on my own. So the way I call him on Eid every year is going to be different than, you know, my my parent forcing me to call their relative that was an abuser, right? That's that's very different. So I think that we have to also qualify what we're talking about here, right? And so and then there's the favorite uncle and auntie that you actually want to call on your own. You know, mom and dad don't even have to tell you. It's like I already called uncle, you know, Samir or whoever it is and it's like because I just love the guy. Every time I went to visit home, he was like really cool and great and fun and you know, played with me and acknowledged who I am as a person. He actually asks like, "How are you as a person?" Like I'm not just an extension of his brother or or sister who happens to be one of my parents, right? So there's there's just different ways, I think. But you're right, you know, immigrants naturally are going to um, salvage and hold on and focus on replicating traditions and, co and collective cultures because it is about preservation, identity and value and a sense of anchoring in a sea of unfamiliar and foreign, perhaps ideas and concepts.
right? And, you know, if you and I were forced to live in, you know, Beijing right now, let's say, and this is a culture that has, you know, it's not very Islamic, right? It's more secular based. It's it's a, a language we don't understand. It's a people who have very old ways of doing things outside of where we come from. We're probably going to act a lot like the way our parents did in some shape or form, right? Even though we grew up in the United States, simply because it's like, wow, everyone out there is so different from us. Nobody's named Osman or Karim or Muhammad that, you know, and nobody speaks Arabi or Urdu or Farsi. And I haven't, you know, there's no Islam clearly around. So we're going to probably go on higher alert, let's say, or overdrive with some of those things that we hope will be preserved in this sea of unfamiliarity or even alien um, influence, perhaps. Is that kind of address that point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I really agree with that approach, you know, the thoughts that you shared. The, the next thing that we want to talk about is that if you have a capacity to check someone who's being narcissistic, and specifically if someone else who's a victim comes to you for justice, it's in your best interest in terms of the dunya and the akhirah to try to ensure some type of justice. What I mean by that is that, you know, the short term or the easy way out is to cover things up, to ignore the problem, to, you know, let things go. But the amount of emotional harm in terms of resentment, anger, um, and just unaddressed uh, injustice, it's, it's going to make the people under you, your constituents, suffer. Um, that actually, like, in terms of uh, workplace dynamics, uh, which I've studied a little bit, it does lead to decreased work productivity if you feel like your boss doesn't listen to you when there's a bully in your midst. So we know this at least from a dunya perspective, but even in the Akhirah, Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran that try to be just because it is closer to taqwa, it is closer to God consciousness to choose justice. Right. But on this, I want to just say, because some people are either very hudud happy, right? Whether they're like looking for any opportunity to apply some medieval approach of, of sharia, or you have, you know, people that are on the other extreme of anything that anyone says, we're going to take it as absolute truth, no matter what it is, right? And so this is this is why a lot of people also shut down victims' voices, because it's like, oh, great, just another person trying to get a spotlight and claim abuse when, you know, you know those are both extremes. I, the point here is, you know, I think when it comes to this idea of serving justice and validating people when they come to you with an oppression, okay, what happens is if I, let's say it's about your best friend or about your wife or husband, or it's about the imam that you've been studying under for all your life and you can see, you know, only khair in them, right? And someone says, this person did X, Y, and Z, right? Validating, in my understanding, isn't about I have to agree with them. It's about I have to, on some level, hold a neutral space in myself to receive the meaning or the story or the possibility that what this person has experienced is actually true versus what I hope or want to be true, right, about the matter. That's important because some people, like I've heard, you know, what do we, why do I have to validate, validate, validate? It's like, I don't agree with any of this. It's like, yeah, but validation isn't about agreeing. Validation is about exercising the possibility that what you think is true may not be true about a event or a person.
That's what it's about, in my understanding, right? It's about holding space for your own humility, even, and receiving alternative um, realities about a person or an event. That's what I think validation is about. It's like, all right, well, let me listen to this person and hear them and 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 recognize that in their world, this actually happened. I don't know if it happened. I'm not sure if I agree. It's hard for me to see that a person that I the person I know that they're claiming oppressed them did all these things, but. There's, there's always a possibility. And this is where we say, Ya Allah, right? P- please, you know, this is really uncomfortable or hard to hear about this person or about, you know, myself or whatever. But I uh, honestly, if it's about the divine relationship, ultimately, which is what, uh, you know, our whole deen, uh, circ- you know, um, revolves around is our relationship with Allah and sincerity with him. I have to be open to these possibilities outside of my own constructed reality. Is that another way to understand validating and trying to serve justice? It's not just about being gun ho and like, whatever this person says, you know, 10 seconds later, I've flipped my whole community on its head because <laughs> of, you know, what what some 18-year-old or, fi- or or 40-year-old or whatever the age is, you know, they, they said they made a claim and now I'm just out there blowing whistles just like that. It's like, no, 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 relax. Do some research, do some investigation, take what they said as a poss- a very real possibility but then if you start to see there's very little evidence there's no proof you know the alibis you know are, are not really adding up or, or or whatever right then this is the point of being conscious and in investigating and trying to serve justice but i think that sometimes we get overly excited with either forgiving serving justice or denying people or just believing people and again all extremes will cause more extreme consequences Right. So it's just a piece of advice for myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think the the one thing that I was thinking about is that it's a willingness to investigate. Right. Like what you were saying about what if this was brought up against my wife? What if this was, you know, the imam that I love that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really wants us to do in terms of serving justice is put aside that emotional connection that you have to that person for a second and just say, I'm willing to, like you said, like exactly like you said, I'm willing to entertain this possibility, and I'm also willing to have evidence brought forth against this person to me to see if this is really the case, right? Because like, there's a lot of people, just like, I mean, first of all, being gung-ho, definitely not the right approach, and, and I've actually seen community members suffer and their lives ruined due to false claims, which is just as terrible, just as much of an injustice. But let's let's all, you know, breathe and look for is there some kind of claim here that can be supported by evidence in terms of, you know, anything in terms of like recordings, in terms of physical evidence. And and the the story in the Quran that that goes perfectly with this is the story of Yusuf Yusuf right? Where the shirt was the evidence. If it's torn from the back, then the wife of the Aziz did it. If it's torn from the front, then it, it was a mutual thing, or or it was Yusuf Salam who was pursuing her. So unless you're a narcissist, you don't take into account the evidence right, and logic. <laughs> right, right, right. But like as a community, if we could all be very much, you know, one of the problems that I see actually like it goes into like Muslim community dynamics as well. Let's let's stop being so emotional for a second, right? 
and just like have space for inquiry that's intellectual and logical and and okay yes you know this beer sob is is you know the descendant of like famous beer sob in 1500 in in Gujarat and in India and like there's nothing that can be said against them really you know from a Quranic perspective like what we mentioned from a perspective of social justice any human being can do anything yeah Qur- Quraysh was noble was the noblest tribe and you had the worst enemies of Allah and the best companions of Allah from the same tribe so what you know so what that's the point right is everyone every, infinite possibilities of how people can manifest their will will happen and part of free will is not just about my own but it's about tolerating the fact that anybody can execute their will the way they want hence why evil can exist and evil can come at me when i did nothing wrong or i didn't bother anybody right that's just part of the package you follow just like you can be minding your own business and something really good happens to you you know it's like i was just getting a coffee and and turns out i was really nice to a a very famous rich entrepreneur who gave me a great job because i was a good person to him in that day and i had no idea who he was but this khair came to me just like that right so it goes both ways with everything right so that was a lot of the summary of of what we spoke today i i really enjoyed the conversation brother kareem and i think you know inshallah this will be helpful to people I really appreciate the opportunity and I thank you so much for having me. Akramakum Allah, Dr. Osman. Thank you for your insights. Those of you listening, please support the podcast at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. And those of you who are patrons, I love you all for the sake of Allah. Thank you for supporting the show. 